You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast, your guide to the climbing community. In this episode, we have Pete Decada, the editor of Accidents in North American Climbing, back on the podcast to talk trends in climbing accidents. With the most recent edition of Accidents in North American Climbing freshly sent off to the printer, Pete has some new, insightful takeaways on the kinds of accidents we should all be paying attention to in our current climbing landscape. Things get a little emotional, existential, and even a little dark, but ultimately we talk about how crowding at our crags, YouTube climbing education, and even grades are contributing to new types of climbing accidents. After all, as Pete says, gravity speaks with an eloquence rarely found on YouTube. But Pete's also seen trends in the way that the climbing community comes together in the face of horrible tragedy. It's the combination of both these high-consequence accidents and the community that makes climbing so real. Get a sneak peek of the newest edition of Accidents in North American Climbing by listening in. Since 1981, outdoor research has created trusted apparel, accessories, and equipment for you to thrive outside. Their award-winning outdoor gear is meticulously researched and tested for outdoor enthusiasts and military users around the globe. Grounded in their values of curiosity, passion, innovation, collaboration, and community, OR strives to create space for all in the outdoors. OR celebrates wins outside at every level together with their ambassadors, nonprofit partners, and employees. Check them out at OutdoorResearch.com. Well, thanks, Pete, for coming back on the podcast. For those people who haven't previously listened to our other episode about trends in climbing accidents, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, so uh, my name is Pete Takeda. I am the editor of Accidents in North American Climbing. Awesome. And you just finished uh, editing this year's book, is that correct? Yeah, just finished. Uh, I would say that we wrapped it on Tuesday. Or was it Monday? (laughs) It's all a blur. It's all a blur, yeah. You know, I think I've actually worked every day for almost three months, and that's you know, there's no way to avoid that, really. This is just the time frame in which you receive your reports, you receive the, the stories you're going to publish, you know, sourcing images and so on. And then it's just it's just the nature of, I think, an annual book that, that gets published. There's just a time where you, you're just, this is, you live and breathe and eat it and sleep with it. <laughs> and I did the other night, I after we're done, I, I woke up and I was having this dream i won't call it a nightmare because it wasn't that unpleasant but yeah i was like so concerned with getting a caption right (laughs) yep the life of an editor just like so completely chaotically consumed by it (laughs) yeah so tell us a little bit more about that process like i think a lot of people don't know fully kind of the rigor that goes into making a book so tell us a little bit more about like what that entails you know every so often i get queries from people you know asking for information and so on (laughs) <laughs> it's like they're reasonable requests. I, I don't think people realize that at many points in this process, it is just myself. And then, 
you know, some volunteer regional correspondence, uh, some volunteers who also work for the National Park Service, the federal government. And so uh, we also get individuals who send their accident reports in via the online form. So it's not like we have this sophisticated network of, you know, it's not like the eight associated press, you know, this is just whoever has the time, you know, sends stuff into us. Mm-hmm. So I might get reports that are incredibly thorough. I like look at them and go, wow, I really don't have anything to add to this. Let's just, <laughs> just put it in a file and print this stuff. And some, you really have to do quite a bit of legwork. You got to reach out and contact various people. You have to verify certain narratives. You have to source images. You got to source the information for the, the caption of those images. You got to get permission from photographers, you know, and if someone witnessed an accident, you have to cross check with them and perhaps the person who experienced the accident. So it's a, it's all over the board and it's, it's complex. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But, but I do think it is, I, I think it's really important to as much as possible fact check, cross check and verify these narratives. I mean, sometimes you can't, Sometimes it's just impossible. Mm. Uh, you might get a report from you know a government entity that essentially deletes most of the particulars, the demographic information, the names, and you really can't dig any further than that. But so it's all over the place. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, definitely. I think the, yeah, the long list you included in there of things you had to fact check often. You know, there's just very fun detail. Okay, so I think the meat of this episode is going to be kind of maybe some of the stories that you picked up from this process of this most recent accidents in North American climbing and just trends you might've been witnessing. So I want to start with, I got to see, like you just finished editorial, right? So it just got sent off to the printer. I've been able to see the preface that you wrote. So I kind of, I'm, I'm aware of some of the trends that you might want to talk about. Um, Do we just want to start there and start with like, you know, what are some of the bigger trends or like new types of accidents that you are seeing emerge? So, you know, climbing has gotten so popular, like it's inconceivably more popular than when I started climbing. And so, you know, with popularity, you you get a couple different things. One, One pattern that I saw is there's a lot of crowding at the crags. So you have a lot of people vying for the same route. Sometimes this causes issues. I saw one of those and actually precipitated an incident in which a lady who he was rushing fell and broke her ankle. Oh my God. And he didn't care. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you know, this guy had uh, apparently some tick list of routes that he wanted to do with a group during the day. And you know, it, it's just completely, it's completely inconsiderate. And so that's, that's one aspect we see, mm-hmm. you know, other, other things we see are, uh, just people being distracted at the crag by the crowds. You know, there, there's a, at least a couple incidents in there where you can just tell people were not being attentive mm-hmm. while they were belaying, or people were not being attentive to the surrounding circumstances, and this precipitated an accident or two at least. The one that really, really got to me was it was a super busy day at a crag in the high country of Colorado, and Apparently, there were more people at this crag than the regulars who go there had ever seen. So maybe there's 20 or 30 people at this crag. Mm. And so some people, you know, 
go down to the farther end of the crowd to avoid the crowds. There are all these one-pitch sport routes of varying difficulties, and there are a couple of these multi-pitch sport routes. What happened is, I think a couple parties got on, you know, one of the the longer routes, you know, with, I think, good intentions, like, well, we're just going to get off the ground, and then this frees up this area for other people to climb, because you can get more than one party on a multi-pitch route. Uh, Someone was rappelling down and, you know, dislodged a rock. And, you know, it's not it's not the fault of whoever did this because it's a, an Alpine crag with all the attendant hazards, loose rock, dirty rock, you know, high altitude, lightning storms, rain, you know, thunder, hail and all that. But I I think that because it was set up as a sport crag, it attracts a lot of people who might not have, you know, awareness of what the hazards are. Mm -hmm. And so long story short, someone dislodges a block. There's a group of people, um, hanging around at the base and the guy yells rock as he should but the people at the base were inexperienced with with rock fall and they ended up running away from the cliff versus running towards the cliff if yeah you're an alpinist or an adventure climber you kind of know i'm going to run to the base of the cliff because nothing's going to hit me there it'll either bounce off or you know, but the rocks that fall off at this crag tend to strike the base like 20 or 30 feet out. And so there was a young lady there wearing a helmet who got hit in the back of the head and she died. And so, you know, stuff like that, when you're reporting it, God, it just, it just gets to you. Mm. Yeah. I, uh, I, I interviewed a couple people, some by phone. I, you know, interviewed someone who, actually had called me while I was climbing in the Andes. She said she'd witnessed this horrible accident. So I spoke with her too. So, you know, a mix of old friends, new friends, and then some of the people who developed this crag. I, I you know, I talked to a bunch of people. And in that process, you, you kind of got to bathe in it and relive it kind of, or re-envision it in your head. And you got to kind of pick it apart and look at it from every angle you can. Boy, that just gets to you. After mm. Because... It's a case of someone really doing everything right. One of the things I really saw was, uh, and this was brought up by every person who witnessed the accident and responded to it, that, you know, when bad things happen, climbers come together. And so, you know, if there's a silver lining to this kind of thing, I should stop. It's okay. Yeah, no, very fair. (laughs) So I basically wrote in the the preface, I'll just read this. I go, you know, this accident really affected these words. It's like, or really influenced what I ended up writing in the preface. I said, finally, after months of swimming through accident reports, I've discovered something else. Against a backdrop of mishap, misadventure, and terrible tragedy, there lies a silver lining. When there's an accident, climbers come together. We help each other. Petty bickering, tribalism, unbridled egos get pushed aside. And when this happens, the best in us has a chance to shine. And this is what makes climbing real. So that's one positive aspect I saw. Because to a person, from the first responders to, you know, the the friends of the, the person who got killed, you know, to people who were just standing by witnessing, it's like, 
even even the emergency services that responded, everyone said, I've never seen such a, you know, helpful group of people who really all just did the right thing. So, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, if, if there's an uplifting aspect, it's something like that. You know, an accident like this also points out uh, it's this necessity for some sort of education within climbing. That's the, uh, you know, a gym to crag initiative to give people the, the basic skills and education that they need to, to go out and have a good time and also, you know, not get in a bad accident. Yeah. There's, I think we'll, we'll pause there and maybe move this. Yeah. An interesting thing about that is I think that a lot of people think that gym to crag just necessitates like you know, etiquette and like, you know, taking your turn on the routes, like it's different than at the gym and like making sure people are just like aware of how weather affects things. But there are so many elements, including like, I didn't know you're supposed to run towards the wall. <laughs> like I'm not an alpinist, but I've been at crags all over the place that do have multi-pitch above me. And that's like a crazy, like specific detail that there's just so like as somebody who has a decade of climbing outside experience, like that's insane that I don't know that. And so like, Jim to Craig is so much more than I think a lot of other people realize, you know. Uh, and, you know, the natural world and outdoor climbing, it's so varied. And, you know, we kind of learn a very specific way of carrying ourselves or a specific attitude, a specific set of rules with indoor climbing. I think those things carry over really well into sport climbing in general, sport cragging. Yet still, there were two instances, other instances of one was a young lady who was climbing single pitch cragging. I believe it was bolted. I, I, I dug and dug, but I couldn't get the details. I don't know if she was wearing a helmet. I would imagine she would have been because I saw every picture of her that she had on her social media. She was wearing a helmet. And, and she got struck on the head and died. This was in uh, South Dakota. Another just heart-wrenching accident was a young lady was with her boyfriend in Utah walking up to this sport crag, which pretty chossy sport crag. She was smart. She wore a helmet on the hike in, and yet still a rock fell. And yeah, she was in a coma for for weeks. I you know, I I tried to dig and find out what her situation was, but you just see like, you know, some vibrant life, someone who has their entire future ahead of them. God, it's just a, I mean, sometimes even for me, sometimes I just wonder if, if climbing is worth it, if it costs one life like this mm-hmm. or if it affects someone's life. I, I would have to say yes. I mean, I would have to say yes because I spent my entire life climbing. But I, 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 I think it's something that transcends what people might call climbing ethics. I used to say that, you know, everything needs to be risky in order for us to learn something or, but, I don't know if I see, you know, some well-meaning people who just wanted to go out and climb and have a good time. It's like, God, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't buy into this, like, you know, my mindset. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if it takes my mindset to be, uh, to go away, then if that saves one life, then I would have to say it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I've gotten this discussion with pretty hardcore alpinists and trad climbers. Like, I think the older you get, the more you're like, well, you know, it's this big hill of achievement I stand on, like, like <laughs> in, in relation to 
the young person's life. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting and maybe important that somebody who has your level of experience and also is sifting through climbing accidents is asking this deeply existential question and wanting to get past like, Oh, it's just, it's that kind of flip in like, Oh, it's just inherently risky. And like, you get so much out of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, you know, it's a, it's a conundrum. Yeah. I do think if people know what they're getting into, then they get to make a choice. But what I see these days is people have no idea what they're getting into. I mean, this, uh, this is one of the points I brought up in my preface too, is that, you know, right now, pretty much in the United States of America and in North America in general, we have this one grading system. And you go to the gym and you learn, wow, I can climb 5.9, I'm going to climb 5.10, and then pretty soon you're climbing 5.12. You know, in my day, to climb 5.12, you had to devote a big chunk of your life to acquiring the physical capacity to do that. These days, you know, you can strap on this tremendous amount of physical ability, and it really taps into this huge pool of talent. But the trouble comes is when one ventures outside and there's this single free climbing grading system that's entirely built on the perception of difficulty. Mm. So you can climb 513 and you go outside and, you know, what if you get on a run out 510 and Eldo? <laughs> you have no idea what you're getting into, maybe. And yeah. that has severe repercussions. You could get onto a, a an unprotected off with not realizing I don't know how to use this, do this technique, and I also don't know how to protect it. You know, you could go on the diamond, and if you have a sport climbing attitude up there, you probably get up the thing, but there's all sorts of attendant risks. And the one thing I notice in a lot of these accidents, it's the easy terrain that's killing people. Mm. Um, because I think if we associate a grade with the level of focus and concentration that we need to bring to all climbing, and we tend to, to let our guard down. There's one instance where, oh, this uh, these two younger male climbers who apparently are just really good climbers, have a tremendous physical capacity, this gym trained. And they went and did a fairly hard four-pitch route. I think this is in upstate New York. And, and they ended up doing it, you know, not a big deal. <laughs> but then on the rappel, they got the rope stuck. And they had no idea how to ascend the rope in order to retrieve it. And so they called up one of the climbing rangers in this park, and she, for the second time in the year, got them on FaceTime and gave them a tutorial on how to prussic, double repel rope, mm -hmm. how to free it and place a nut in order to avoid jamming the knot in the crack when they pulled the rope, and then they successfully made it to the ground. She actually went up in the dark with a headlamp and met them up there to make sure they got back. She's a... Uh, if you folks will read about her in this in this book, she's one of the unsung heroes of uh, of, of my season of editing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's really I think interesting to think about how a paradigm of grading systems can be part of accident trends. Right? It's not even just like you know. I think it's more traditional to be like, there's a trend in like more free soloing accidents happening or something, which we could talk about later. But, but thinking about like the way that we think in climbing culture and like how that permeates into our accidents that might be happening. Yeah. Cause you know what the, the growth of popularity in climbing is like, you know, there's a proliferation of media out there and there were a bunch of like really 
wild free solo deaths. And you'll, you can read about it in the book. And I think, you know, some of these are perpetuated by this desire to create content. I'm not saying social media is bad. I'm not saying creating content to share is bad, but I do think these things have a subtle influence on people when they make certain decisions. One, one particular person died free soloing and he had a camera set up recording his free, his last free solo. And to me, this is a, like free soloing is a life and death thing. It's like going into combat. It's like getting shot at or something. It, it's, it's, th- this is for real. There's no reset button. And the thing I wrote in the preface is gravity speaks with a, uh, it, it, it's like an eloquence not found on YouTube. And so I'm not going to blame social media for this, but I would say that if someone dies with their camera set up while free soloing, while recording something for social media, it, it shows how something that exists with a bunch of ones and zeros on the internet actually influences outcomes in the real flesh and blood world. And so folks can read about that accident also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we're not judgmental here. Like we just report the facts, but people can draw their conclusions from what they read. And yeah, that's one thing I saw. And another thing I saw that, that's related to the proliferation of media on the internet is there were a couple of accidents where clearly the person was self-taught in other words, they found information on the internet to set up and execute very complex rope systems. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having a tutorial. I mean, I'm on YouTube all the time looking at like, how do you do this? Or what does this person say to do this? How do you train like this or that? But I'm also aware enough that, that there is a lot of material out there. There's a lot of conflicting information. There is a lot of contradictory information. And there is no substitute for mentoring, education, and training in the real world. And the thing is, is it's just like anything else in life. Climbing is hard. Climbing is difficult. Climbing is complex. Climbing is really rewarding, but it's your, your success in it is proportional to the amount of work you put into it. Some of that work is to go, wow, well, today I'm not going to, you know, do climb X, Y, or Z, but I'm going to take the time to understand and learn the steps that it takes to to achieve that goal and i think if we have that mindset slow things down a little bit understand that you know i can't know everything there is to really know based on what i see on the internet then wow maybe maybe this is actually a lot of fun maybe acquiring these skills and experience and building those memories is like part of this experience you know mm-hmm. instead of i don't know instead of looking at it as wow, more digital currency. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, it's very, um, I don't know the word postmodern keeps coming. I'm like, are we in the postmodern age of climbing? <laughs> that's, a, that, that's a great, great question. Because if you look at climbing's origin, it's, it's, it's the survival thing. We have to climb a tree when the lion chased us. Actually a lion can climb a tree too. So, you know, maybe we had to shimmy up a rock face. So that's a real life, skill Mm. nature is going to select who survives that so as climbing evolves it becomes this practical tool that's used one for conquest to you know plant the cross or the flag on top of the high point it also becomes a tool that's used for exploration and science Mm. and that's kind of the birth of of climbing in the alps something for the sake of this other thing like 
science. You know, in the golden age of alpinism in the Alps, it became a pursuit unto itself. And I would say that's the first modern. It's the pursuit of vertical ascent to fight gravity for the mere sake of doing that. Mm. What happened is in order to climb hard routes or, or, or hard mountains, one had to quote unquote practice the skills. That is the emergence of rock climbing. And rock climbing perhaps is postmodern in the sense that it is, it is a derivative byproduct of the original activity that served a greater purpose. Yeah. And so if we evolve things along, you know, as climbing subdivides into bouldering, into aid climbing, into big wall climbing, into big wall free climbing, into ice climbing, into mixed climbing, to sport mixed, to sport climbing, we finally arrive at this thing called indoor climbing, which originally started as training for the outdoors. Now it's post postmodern in the sense that it is an artificial equivalent of something that was a contrived equivalent of the bigger thing. And so now indoor climbing exists as a legitimate and pretty fun game within climbing. It exists unto itself. Mm. It's, it's its own self-contained autonomous world. And it's the world that's where I spend easily these days, the last, certainly the last three or four months, 90% of my time, mm. you know, indoor training. I mean, I'm not even climbing a lot. I'm just fingerboarding, which that's like a post, post, post model. <laughs> Addition of this thing that actually mimics movement in the outdoors. Yeah, I don't care. I'll take it. I'm doing this for the rest of my life. I know where to find it. Oh, that just blew my mind. I love it so much. <laughs> um, okay, so now that we've established that climbing is post, post, postmodern uh, <laughs> at its point uh, in its development, you also mentioned a trend in repel anchor failures. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh yeah, that's right. That's a forgot about that. So yeah, there were three. Yeah, really serious repel anchor failures. So three incidents and a total of three fatalities. There was a, you know, the fourth, you know, person who suffered a repel failure. I mean, he yeah, he survived. Yeah, I mean, it's a credit to himself and his partner and the rescue team that he survived this. Those mm-hmm. guys really kept it together and rescue responded fast and so on. But the disturbing thing with this trend is two of them took place in Southern California, and they, they both involved an anchor on an existing route that was composed of webbing. In one case, it was webbing tied to bolts. In another case, it was webbing on a tree. So in the one with the webbing on the bolts, the webbing was just so old. This was an area that you know had been developed in the 80s and seen very little traffic since then. Mm. And it was pretty much standard issue back then. I remember putting up roots and, you know, you tie a piece of one inch webbing, you thread the rope through it and, uh, yeah, you wrap off. What do you do? You know, Hey, there's two bolts. It's safe. You know, this is, this is bombing. But what we're seeing in the case of this anchor is the anchor was seldom used and it, it sat out there in Joshua tree mm-hmm. in the heat and in the sun all year round. Mm-hmm. And it just, decayed to the point where it broke when this really experienced climber threaded her rope and then started repelling and it failed. Mm-hmm. The second incident was two very, very experienced climbers at uh, Takit's Rock. They clipped in to a sling on a tree. And according to the report, it didn't appear that this sling is like 
the super popular rappel anchor mm-hmm. because there was only one, you know, strand of one inch tubular webbing mm-hmm. around the tree, the, the tree trunk. You'll see it in the report. But the, the cork here is they were bailing because it had started raining. They're in control of the situation. They're like apparently, you know, laughing and joking as they're getting ready to descend. But the, but the rub was, is this webbing had been soaked in water. Mm. So it appeared dark and it felt supple. And they were both clipped to it. And when the first person started down, the sling broke and both of them, you know, perished. Mm-hmm. So this is another example of, well, it's a really old piece of webbing, a single piece of webbing around, you know, an otherwise bomber tree. And, you know, even though those two as expert climbers did not recognize the fact that it had been compromised. So that's case number two. Case number three, uh, a team has just climbed uh, the East Face, or it's the East Ridge of Pingora. It's super popular, 50 classic climbs of North America. And they're doing the descent. And the descent, you know, involves, you know, quite a few, I I think it was like five to six repels, something like that. And, you know, people on an alpine descent like that, especially if it's popular, there there tends to be quite a few anchors. These anchors are by and large composed of slings around blocks. Mm. And there's usually an entire rat's nest of webbing, like all these strands of webbing wrapped around a block. Mm. And then there's some ring or some, you know, extended sling that you you repel off. So this one particular gentleman clipped into these really bomber strands that had been threaded through, you know, this massive, uh, or had been threaded through, yeah, the sling on a, on a block. And the block was kind of typical of an Alpine anchor. It's a, it's a block that's wedged in a crack and you're, you're threading the webbing through what they call a pinch, which is good because the webbing won't pull off. It won't pull up. It won't pull down. It's it's kind of fixed in place. The trouble with this particular sling was it had experienced, you know, the normal weathering from a high altitude environment. It's hot, you know, in the summer. It's cold at night. It's freezing in winter. You know, the sun is super intense. The UV is intense. And there was probably frost wedging occurring with the block. In other words, it would contract when it got cold. It would expand when it got warm. And it actually cut the webbing. So when he leaned back, the webbing just broke. And so he fell 50 feet. And uh, he hit some ledges on the way down. And fortunately for him, that slowed him down enough to uh, let him... I mean, basically, that saved his life. And I think you're going to see this in next month's prescription. Mm -hmm. And uh, we actually got a really good shot of one of the equivalent anchors up there. And yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's typical in that there's a million slings or not a million, you know, a dozen slings of various vintage, <laughs> like wrapped around a block. And, you know, I, I make some, I made some very pointed assessments about what I saw in an anchor like that. And, you know, I'm the kind of guy who you know, I put up roots, made sure I never bolted up, you know, to create a, you know, to maintain the, the highest possible sense of adventure and get, out of the rock that it could, it could give me. Mm. You know, I believe in that style of climbing. But in the case of this, man, there should just be two bolts or make it three, <laughs> whatever, because it's a descent. Mm. And we can talk about, you know, our alpine ethics or so on. You know, if there's a bunch of people who are going to be climbing this all the time and climbing's not illegal, then if we, if we can avoid one instance like this, then great. You know? put some bolts in, you know, put that information out there. Because this is the, I, I think 
this is before I became editor, but I believe that a really good climber from Colorado had been rappelling, I think on the same or a similar rappel route in this range, the Wind Rivers and the, the Circle of the Towers. And someone, I believe, dislodged a block and it happened to hit her rappel sling anchor and cut it. Wow. And she perished. She's mm-hmm. a really good climber. Mm-hmm. That, that's just incredible bad luck. But one could make the point, too, that if there are two bolts there, you know, then the sling wouldn't have cut. Maybe it would cut the rope. I don't know. Mm. But in that situation, I'd rather be hanging off two bolts <laughs> with links than, uh, you know, a bunch of slings wrapped around a block. Yeah. And trust me, i put in plenty of bad anchors. <laughs> and uh, some of those have been replaced. And I thank the people <laughs> who did that. So mm-hmm. that's another thing that uh, I got picked up from. Yeah, trends and accidents in 2022. And I think the last thing I wanted to bring up about your preface was that you kind of used the phrase, that's, this is what makes climbing real a couple times. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that? I think, uh, I think being accountable to risk makes climbing real. I believe that the actual risk makes you have to be accountable. Yeah. To this thing called climbing. And that's what makes climbing real. Like it's tragic when, an accident happens and someone gets killed or someone gets hurt or, you know, someone gets maimed. But uh, there's something about the empowerment one can derive through safely navigating through a puzzle, you know, or through a route or whatever. That's empowering. That's what makes climbing real. It makes It's what makes climbing different than, you know, I'd say, you know, most of the, most of the, uh, most of the activities, most of the sports out there. Because mm. most sports are a really, you know, highly refined version of the original activity in which all the, all the, all the risk has attempted to become mitigated. Mm. And climbing is just not that way. Like even, even in the gym, there's so many gym accidents. Like mm. the thing is, is you're fighting gravity and every so often you make a mistake and everything lines up and then gravity, gravity, you know, takes you down. That's what makes climbing real. And I mentioned that again, when, when, you know, in the face of tragedy, we get to see the best of our fellow climbers. Mm. One thing I wanted to say to, to you in marketing and your entire marketing team is, you know, I periodically get these, these really nice emails or messages saying, thank you for what you do. Mm. I, I get these and it really touches me. Yeah. But I want to say to you guys, that you guys are every bit part of it. It's just your name. It just isn't on the masthead. So mm-hmm. thank you. <laughs> and so it's, it's this kind of thing where we can learn, we can help each other, we can hold each other high, you know? Mm. Yeah, we can elevate each other. And sometimes it happens when we experience tragedy. So, yeah. Which isn't to say it's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think you get to see real things in people. Mm. So, yeah. And especially in, I feel like sometimes our postmodern versions of anything, including climbing cannot feel real then like we can get caught up in it but to have to like come back to the realness of climbing is to like really find the source of it i think yeah it's it's empowering it there's something about it that yeah it does feel real and i think so much what we do like you know i get stressed out over my deadline it's like well in the end i'm not going to live or die by the deadline Mm. you know i get stressed out like uh you know watching news coverage on something it's like well I'm not going to live or die based on this, this, this thing I'm seeing. You know, we do have that fight or flight response. You know, when we re, when we get stressed, and all this is takes place in this virtual world, 
And there's always a reset button. Thing is, climbing oftentimes there is no reset button. And I think that's what I mean. Whenever you have to become accountable to yeah real forces out there, there are there are results. There are penalties for our actions. We become accountable to those things. Mm. And I think that's why, in a way, like a lot of what happens on the internet, people are unaccountable to like anything, and so they can say or do whatever. But yeah, I, I think that that does them no favors. Because in some way they're accountable for it, mm. yeah. And you know, if we all lived in this slightly more uh, tangible world, we'd think twice about what we put out there. Mm. So you've already shared like a number of really good sneak peeks into the Accidents in American Climbing book that's coming out soon. Um, do you have any other standout stories that you think you'd want to share? You know, they, I mean, every year there's a host of really unusual accidents that you just you, you read and you're like going, whoa, this, this, this cannot be true. Like you, you, you couldn't make this stuff up. But one thing that struck me is sometimes I would track down someone who was the eyewitness or who was the bystander, who was the first responder. And I think those discussions I had really touched me the most. And yeah, the, 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 the one thing that that I felt good about is I could bring personal experience into this because I've been first responder to a couple accidents and you know, you're the only person sitting there and you try to draw upon all your medical training and you know, you keep doing the right thing, but it, it's a, you still have this feeling of helplessness. It's like, I, I can't change what's going to happen. You just got to be there and be in that moment. And I described it to someone that's like, Oh man, like you were there for three hours and that's an eternity. Mm. It's a lonely time. Yeah, and just, you know, hearing like what these individuals brought to someone who was hurt or dying. It's, uh, yeah, one of the most, those are the most uplifting things that I heard all year. Mm. Yeah, those aren't written up in the, because we're just recording the facts, but in the process, God, you just get to, you just get to talk with some pretty amazing people. Mm. Because it's, it's so, it's so anonymous and it's so, uh, yeah, it's unwitnessed. But that makes it more beautiful. Like this guy, God, he's just basically has to be with this girl and she's just dying. But there are a couple of instances in this year's book where the person is responding. So they're hearing that mm. or they understand it in some way. I mean, my first accident I witnessed, holy shit, I'm like, God, I just don't, I don't want to be this guy. Mm. I just wanted to leave and say, I don't know what happened to her. Mm. That's my first response. But then, you know, I can stay. But... <laughs> Yeah. It's just awful. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's pretty much not an accident in this book that either I've avoided or I experienced and got away with it or that I've witnessed and responded to or that I've just seen and just thank the universe. I didn't have to be the person to, to deal with that show. Mm -hmm. Bringing that into the, it's like these repel accidents. Oh, I just remember in the Himalayas, we did this first ascent. Never reported it, but it's just this big ice route. I remember wrapping off a block. And then I just think about it. It's like, well, I'm not going to put a pizza on it because I don't want to leave the pizza. And so I'm just going to go off this block. <laughs> and then my girlfriend has to go after I was watching her go down. And I'm just like, whoa, like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, 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 sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and go, oh. 
that I think, oh, remember that time you did this? Because there's so many adventures I've had. Sometimes I totally forget them. And then I'll read next and I'll go, oh, God, this, these people are so dumb. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute. Do you remember that one time you did this and then you did it again? <laughs> and then you said, oh, I'm going to read Robin's, Royal Robin's Basic Rockcraft again and see if I get it straight. Stuff like that. So Yeah. I mean, we're all just figuring it out. <laughs> Yeah, speaking of that, we're all just figuring it out. There was one accident in which the person is a med student. I think we reported this in the prescription, but she reports this accident. I'm like, well, you know, she just can't remember right, or she's just not telling the truth because she's embarrassed, or she just doesn't recall it right. And so I built in a couple scenarios that I go, this is how it had to have happened. This is how it had to happen, because I have so much experience and I know everything. And then I woke up in the middle of the night going, wait a minute. Because the clinical way that she delivered the report and, you know, cross-checking by finding someone flew a drone and took a picture of the belay anchor, you know, I started going, well, her story has to be true, but it's something I don't understand. And then I, I, you know, I got on Mount Project and just started, you know, I'll message people, I'll PM them and go, hey, you know, I'm the editor of Accidents and like, I saw your post, you know, and you, you, you made this comment. What do you think happened or how can you substantiate this? So I'll sometimes, if it's a puzzle, I'll spend a week going after all the details I can. And sure enough, she was right. It's just the most freak accident you could imagine. And she did pretty much everything right. I mean, there's some people who might say, well, she could have done this or could have done that. It's just in the, the basic principles of what she did, she did it right. But man, it's just the one thing that could happen that she was holding on probably two, two stiff captive lower beaner sport draws. She was probably holding them right above the gate. The belay, I actually measured it, looking at the two bolts versus where the ledge is and kind of understanding how tall she was. They're exactly at waist height with the belay repel device. And only under those circumstances could this have happened. Like because the repel like the rope came unclipped from her as she yeah, was about it just to repel came unclipped from two carabiners. Yeah. Like that just like, I was like, there's no way that happens. <laughs> like, like if that actually happens and climbing is so dangerous, we all better just start top roping steel locking. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's just, you know, people can say, well, you know, being her gate, the post and all this, it's like, yeah, that's absolutely true. But, but you know what? I've never seen two carabiners on an anchor come unclipped both from the rope at the same time. Mm. That's just, but it's just this one particular setup with this particular type of quick draw at a particular height. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't really make the bolt. I can, like, I was fairly critical of where the bolts were placed, and I thought about it. I don't know. That's the place you would have to put them. Like, yeah. I looked at the links. I go, well, you could do this with the links. I mean, you can do a million different things, but this is just what happened, and we can all learn from it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I try not to pride myself with being a know-it-all. <laughs> I think I know a lot, but stuff like this points out that, well, you don't know everything, so why don't you just listen? Says the guy who's been talking for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What was I going to say? Yeah, just like the – I think that really also demonstrates just like there's randomness in life, and randomness will happen. <laughs> yeah, but that's a great point. You know, there's a lot of critique out there. But you know what? An accident's an accident. No one ever set out to like 
it's like, wow, I'm going to try to kill my friend today. Or, whoa, you know, life is so great. I'm just going to figure out a way to just, you know, break both legs. Well, it's like, that, that ain't how life is. Mm-hmm. I was in an accident one time. I was in the Himalayas and four of us got buried in an avalanche. There's all these extenuating circumstances I could bring into it. I could be self-critical, whatever. We got in an accident. We all survived. We were stuck. We were buried by an avalanche in this crevasse for four days. We made it down. You know, we all go to counseling when we return to the States. My counselor is a great guy. He sat us down and, you know, and, you know, there's all the usual counselor stuff. It's, he did at one point say, look at all of us. And so go, Hey, so, uh, so do you think, um, this was fated? That this was meant to happen. And everyone's like kind of shrugs their shoulders, like waiting for the expert to, to deliver the verdict. And he goes, do you think, do you think God hates you? And everyone's like, well, I, I think he does. <laughs> and then he's like, do you think you deserve this? Do you think this is part of some lesson, you know, this big pattern, this thing you have to learn. And uh, everyone's just kind of sitting there quietly. You know, you, you can tell everyone is very receptive, but everyone has a different idea of, of what is right and what he said. Then he looks at it and, and all of us and says, guess what? It was a fucking accident. <laughs> and that gives me pause to think, you know, it's like, well, we want to ascribe greater meaning to things, but these are the things that happen. The whole thing is like, yeah, you could be crossing the street and get run over. Mm-hmm. You know, we practice our sport and it's a high risk environment. There's no way to say it isn't. There's no way to plate it up as anything but a high-risk environment. I believe statistically it's incredibly safe. It's probably safer than playing football. Mm, yeah. yeah. It's probably safer than riding your bike. But the thing is, is when something happens in climbing, because gravity is involved and distances, it's, it, it's fairly spectacular. I don't mean spectacular isn't something you want to see, but it, it's dramatic. So, you know... I think at some points in your life, you gain a lot of uh, personal empowerment by, you know, you know, having self-determination when everything is kind of going chaotic around you, because that's kind of the crux of the root. <laughs> it's like, well, I got to perform the best I can when, you know, psychologically and physically I'm under duress. I think those are the things that we gain from climbing. So honestly, your, your story about um, the medical student and kind of having to sleuth understanding what happened there and everything is brings me to this really interesting question that I don't know if you have more examples, but were any accidents particularly tricky or nuanced in terms of like how to correctly analyze them or like what to offer as analysis? Yeah. So there, I can't, I I can't come up with it. I mean, there were a couple accidents I really had to dig to get, to get the facts that I could. And I I actually kind of enjoy those in the sense that, you know, you, you get this, set amount of data and from that you have to you know figure out some of the important points and it is like a narrative so you know i'm a narrative writer this is my first real editing job (laughs) the truth (laughs) it's nice to be accountable to the truth (laughs) but um you know every one of these accidents is its own narrative there are characters there are characters we learn to care about there are characters who from the outset, we relate to because we are climbers and they're climbers. So you have character, you have setting. I was climbing on El Cap on a sunny day in July. You get that kind of context. And you know it's leading up to some sort of drama. So 
you kind of get this dramatic buildup to the incident. And then there is a definitive resolution. There's no mystery in the end of what exactly transpired. We have high stakes. It's life and death, life and limb. You know, we have the problems of affecting rescue, the problems of someone affecting their own rescue. And then we have usually an analysis, whether it's written by the person who experienced the accident, whether it's so clear to us editors that we can come up with the analysis, or whether that's done by whatever reporting agency sent us the report. Mm. So these are all very, uh, very compelling individual stories. And I think it was Margaret Atwood who said, one day we shall all become stories. And that's all we'll be. (laughs) That's awesome. One thing that maybe kind of diverges from that is I've heard you talk about how there's no way to analyze a free solo incident. Like there's not much you can take away, but it's really important to report on it. And so I was wondering if there are there other types of accidents that don't really lend themselves to analysis properly, but still deserve to be reported on? Or do you want to elaborate more about what you mean by that in terms of free solo accidents? That's a really good question. That's a hard one to answer. You know, I I think with free solo accidents, it's, it's usually person X was climbing and fell and they fell to their deaths. We do have one report this year from someone who was free solo and who survived. And he gives a fairly cogent and understandable explanation of what led up to him actually having this incident. I'm going to leave that as a surprise to the readers. Mm. The other incidents, it's like, well, it's a bright, sunny day, and you know, the, the person, for whatever reason, fell, and they're no longer with us, so uh, we can't really know the particulars. Mm. And I guess the lesson is, if you want to avoid dying by free soloing, is don't free solo. So, you know, it's hard to come up with specific analysis. You know, I'd say that if, you know, someone had been uh, warned that the route was wet and went up on the route anyway, Mm. free solo style, we could say, well, the the lesson here is your chances of falling are higher if the rock is wet. But but I think (laughs) those things are are fairly obvious. There, There was another incident in which a team of two carrying a rope were free soloing a large alpine rock route in the Canadian Rockies. They stopped on a ledge and decided to break the rope out and rope up. Person two had stated a desire to free solo the climb for whatever reason prior to starting the climb. At this point, when they're roping up on the ledge, he is still into roping up to taking the necessary safeguards. He ended up having to wait as another party came down unroped. At this point, he made the decision to continue unroped. And as his partner is recoiling the rope, this person slips off a hold and falls probably a thousand feet. Non-negotiable fall. I, I don't know what lesson to put in there other than, I mean, there's nothing you can do that's safer or less safe other than a rope up. Yeah. You know, and it's it's a personal decision that person made. But I do think that... Um, I do think if you see someone doing something and you think it's cool, that isn't that isn't reason to change your mind and decide to do it. It's like smoking or drinking too much or uh, you know, playing Russian roulette. Uh, I don't know. But you know, when we're young, we just uh, we got stuff to prove. Uh, you know, it's yeah. This in a case like this, it's like you can't call back a fall like that. You can't like re- go back in time and change things. I do feel for his partner. 
his partner had to sit there, like attempt to communicate with this fallen climber, attempt to assess whether this climber was still alive or not, because you have to do that, you know, in the, 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 the you know, the, the final outcome of the incident is there were a bunch of parties up there. They had to evacuate everyone by helicopter in order to not endanger the rescuers who were actually retrieving the dead body. Mm-hmm. And so when we're thinking of unroped climbing, if we can't be completely conscious of our own mortality, we should be really aware of, of how this affects the ones around us. So, I mean, that's as close as an analysis as we're ever going to get, which is fairly inconclusive. Or does that sound conclusive? <laughs> it's, it's conclusive in its inconclusiveness. <laughs> Climbing in its own way is an art. An art defies analysis Mm. just this thing that happens and then it's gone so wow that was deep (laughs) (laughs) okay lastly i wanted to dig into kind of more data just numbers charts that sort of thing we can do you want to talk about the state of climbing chart or do you i don't even really look at it like 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 to me there there was some numbers there that were clearly put out you know, for a presentation to give uh, a, a general view of the state of climbing. But I just think that there's no analysis and we can't tell where those numbers came from. Mm. Um, you know, that, I'll, I'll say this. So one thing Google and I are working on is just, you know, maybe re reassessing our data points and then attempting to figure out a way to to go back through all these narratives that go back to what 1958 and attempt to, to fill in as many blanks as possible. I've had a few people want to volunteer for this. I think the minute they see what kind of task it is, they, you know, I, it'd be really hard. You, you couldn't pay enough to someone to do this, but maybe there's someone out there who has like, you know, it wouldn't be like a bachelor's student. It would have to be like a PhD student because this, this is going to, this would take a long time. Mm. But um, I would say that, Within the pages, the physical pages of the accidents books, lie these complete narratives. And within those narratives lies a pretty good, solid data set if we could figure out a way to, to get the time and, you know, financing to do something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's a Herculean task. Yeah. <laughs> do you have any questions about what I think about data? Like, I, I, like what was reflected in that? You know, one... Primarily, so this is from the 2019 State of Climber report, and like the, the one of the interesting things to me, which is maybe something that I think maybe you replicate in ANEC yearly, is just like a percentage breakdown of the types of accidents. You know, if you're going to categorize each accident by cause, was it a fall or slip on rock? Apparently, according to the 2019 data, that is the most popular type of accident. It's like 38% of accidents happen by because of fall or slip on rock and then you know it goes into things like exceeding abilities as a category or illness or stranded or lost or repel accident so like interesting kind of like categories wise because there is one thing that gets put up like kind of debunked in this report is the kind of anecdote that people pass around that more accidents happen on descents than they do on on ascents which like blew my mind because I had always been like repelling is super dangerous. Like I need like, which it is. And we just talked about multiple deaths because of like severe repel incidents. But if actually the data substantiates that more accidents happen while people are climbing, 
instead of descending. Yeah. That is bonkers to me. Yeah, no, I, I would have to agree. I, I would say, just thinking back, I, I don't have the data, the data tables from this year, year's book front of me, but yeah, I'd, I'd say, yeah, the single biggest category is fall or slip on rock or ice or snow. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think quite a few of those, in fact, the vast majority are going to be non-fatal incidents. And I think the reason repelling sticks out so much is usually it ends in a fatality. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's why, you know, there's a, a, like this perhaps disproportional yet more amplified urgency around that type of accident. And I think too, that, you know, good climbers die repelling. Good climbers also take big falls and break their ankles and, you know, get hurt or whatever. I think I was thinking, I just read this Brad Gobright profile and, we're talking about him recovering from this fall or this fall or whatever. And yeah, sure enough, he, you know, dies simul wrapping in uh, El Petrero Chico. So, you know, statistically, that incident might represent a very small part of overall accidents. But yeah, there's there's always a dramatic result of that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I don't know if that's helpful. I think your analysis is, is very good, though. <laughs> Perhaps you would like to take this project. <laughs> Please no, I have too much to do already. <laughs> you do. You have you have so much. <laughs> okay, and last, maybe second to last question. Are there any other misconceptions that maybe come to mind that about accidents or the accidents that happen more frequently that you would maybe want to mention to our listeners? Not really. I mean, we had a couple bouldering accidents reported. I, I wrote one up. I just know there's way more than that. I reached out to someone who had a Instagram video posted in which he fell in the indoor gym and it drove his tip fit all the way out the side of his foot to where his foot was almost dangling by, you know, skin and some sinew. I know, maybe not this dramatic, but there are quite a few incidents like this. And I think if boulders and indoor climbers wish to acquire statistical immortality for their hard-earned, you know, accidents, <laughs> they should feel free to write me via our online form. And I, as I was telling Google, the executive editor the other day, I really prioritize people's personal reports they send in, especially if they have, you know, photograph photographs also. It really helps. Mm-hmm. High-res photographs, no x-rays. Not too much gore, but I do I do really take the time to to attempt to include these these personally uh, reported incidents in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Given like how important the narrative part is, yeah. yeah, yeah. And if someone can do their own analysis, they're telling us way more than I can tell you about what happened to person X, Y, or Z because mm-hmm. they were there. They know what led up to it. They know the outcome. They know the result. You know what better person than? I mean, they're the subject matter expert. Mm-hmm. It's seldom like some rare esoteric technique that they messed up that created the accident. It's usually something very human. Mm-hmm. You know, some very human oversight that led to it. And I think those are the, I think those are the most learnable things. Like we all want to go, oh, what kind of knot do I have to tie? Or how do I clip an ascender to a, you know, a, a personal anchor system? It's like, well, yeah, those are, those are all important things to know. But I think the things we need to carry with us is I've worked all day. I wanted to get my session in, in the gym. And in my haste, I forgot to clip into the auto belay. Mm-hmm. Those are the type of things 
It's what's going on in your life. It's what's going on, you know, in your mind, where your emotions are at, why you weren't attentive. Those are the things that people should pay heed because they're going to pay attention to that. Like seldom is someone going to go, oh yeah, well, that one time I repelled, I only clicked a single strand, you know, so I double checked now and I, I wrote it on my hand so I don't forget it. It's <laughs> like, no, you were fatigued. You were excited because you did your hardest route. You threaded the rope and forgot to finish your knot because someone said, man, I was so stoked for you, bro. And you're like, yeah, that was so rad. And you forgot to finish your knot. This is what happens. Yeah. So when we get in that position, if we read this somewhere in our reptilian subconscious, it's like pink flag. That's what saved my life more than once. It's just that feeling of, you know, now's the time you better pay even more attention because mm. there's all these distractions or there's this fatigue. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know what I think the really beautiful thing is, is that you were just talking about how you're prioritizing, you know, people bringing in their personal stories, the analysis. And I think that just throughout this entire conversation and, you know, we started also earlier with kind of the silver lining of the climate community coming together. It feels like ANAC is the epitome of the climate community coming together over accidents in order to educate each other, right? It is a community-born effort. And it's like really kind of beautiful. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's uh, there's so many volunteers, right? You know, from, you know, the folks in Yosemite National Park who compile this stuff and then send it to me, you know, and they have to check with their superiors or whatever the park service, if, if what they're sending, you know, is, is passes muster, you know, there's... God, the individuals who report, you know, the, the regional correspondents who they're busy, they're, they're guides or they're educators, they have lives. And yet, you know, they get some obnoxious email from me reminding them gently that, you know, the deadline is coming up and all that, you know, they have to go out of their way and inconvenience themselves to do this. But the thing that's unifying with all these individuals is they have a sense of service to the community. And I think it's healthy for people, if they're part of the community, to feel like they are giving back to it so it's you know it's to their benefit that they're doing this too mm -hmm. not just to the rest of us but yeah it's it's what makes us climbers mm -hmm. you know we all want to help each other out you know so to me this is just a beautiful gift to be able to to do this type of thing lucky and i'm grateful to all those who also contribute as i wrote in the preface you know i'm grateful to you all and you know who you are thank you mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Thanks to them, the unnamed contributors. And thank you, Pete, for this awesome conversation. This was really illuminating. I'm super psyched to read this <laughs> Anak edition cover to cover and be sad, but also excited. <laughs> yeah, I'll do some uplifting moments. There are some, uh, there's some amazing dramas in this, this year's book. Okay, that was a lot of talk about accidents. And I think a lot of times uh, climbers believe that won't happen to me. I'm really smart about, you know, all my systems and everything that won't happen to me. Well, the AAC wants to make double sure that if it does happen to you, because it does happen to really experienced climbers all the time, that um, you are prepared. And so we're going to have... Um, we're going to have our membership director, Lee Preston, um, tell us a lot about how our rescue benefit works um, and all the kind of ins and outs that you need to know, either as a member, if you already are a member and have this rescue benefit, and maybe you don't know all the ins and outs of it, but also if you're interested in getting this rescue benefit and becoming a member to make sure that you're covered if anything were to happen when you get outside. Um, so Lee, can you introduce yourself? Sure. I mean, you kind of took it all, but my name is Lee Preston and I am the membership director at the club. Okay, so let's just start super basic. What is the rescue benefit? 
Okay, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, Rescue Benefit is basically a pool of money that our members have access to that's designed to cover the cost of transportation that gets you from the site of a backcountry medical emergency to the hospital. Um, So we most often think about helicopters because it mostly will be helicopters, but it could also cover an ambulance getting you from a trailhead to the hospital. Um, Our members have access to two different tiers of coverage. So partner level members, that's our family members, our student members, our military members, and everybody at that partner level, it's $100 a year, have access to up to $7,500 in rescue coverage. Um, So that's that pool of money you have to work from. Um, And then our leader members, so that includes leader and advocate and great ranges, they have access to up to $300,000 in rescue coverage. So it's a really big jump in coverage, um, but both pools of money cover the exact same types of things, which is uh, transportation from a site of a medical emergency to the hospital. And then can you tell us what the uh, medical benefit is? Sure. So that's the kind of like lesser known part of this because we always refer to it as a rescue benefit. Um, But we do actually also have a really amazing uh, perk, which is $5,000 in medical expense coverage. So this is to our partner, leader, and advocate members. Um, It's a pool of money, uh, regardless of whether or not you were rescued from a medical emergency. If you find yourself in the hospital and you have out-of-pocket expenses um, related to emergency stabilization, so say that's getting x-rays in the hospital or getting a cast at urgent care or whatever it takes to stabilize you after a medical emergency, um, sometimes those bills can be pretty high, getting you to your deductible or kind of regardless of your health insurance situation. So you have up to $5,000 in coverage from Redpoint to apply towards those costs. That sounds like an awesome benefit. Can you tell us what kind of activities this covers and why is that relevant? Sure. So obviously our main market is climbers, uh, the average sport trad climber out there in the world. But uh, this coverage actually works for you basically in any type of scenario. So you could be hiking, mountain biking, backcountry skiing, uh, traditionally rock climbing. You can be mountaineering, really anything in between. As long as you're not flying in an airplane or you know paragliding, those kinds of more extreme activities, um, you are certainly covered. That is so cool. And so why is that relevant? Because most other insurance doesn't cover these types of activities, right? Yeah, it's definitely super unique that we have a benefit that specifically covers climbing and climbing accidents. Traditionally, you might see in insurance policies that climbing is like the one activity that is excluded. So that can be really dangerous for climbers out there to be kind of entering health insurance policies and not realize till it's too late that maybe they're actually not covered for a climbing related incident. Um, So that's why it's super crucial for everyone to know about this benefit and how it works specifically for climbers. But also if you're not climbing that much this year and you're like me and you're mostly trail running or biking or something else, you still are covered. Yeah, that's really awesome. I, I know like a lot of members aren't aware that it like mm-hmm. covers a ton of different activities. That's awesome. Um, so how does it work? Can you walk us through an example scenario? Sure. So uh, the way it works in an ideal world is that you have an emergency phone number for Redpoint Travel Protection. Um, and you initiate your rescue through that phone number. Um, so that assumes a lot of things. That assumes you have cell service. That assumes that you have that number saved on your phone already. That assumes that you're like with it enough to make that phone call. Um, so if that if that all is true and you're able to make that phone call, they, were co- they will coordinate with um, on-the-ground rescue teams to get you out of there and get you to the hospital. Um, if, for whatever reason, you aren't able to contact Redpoint, say maybe you are unconscious and maybe your climbing partner doesn't realize they're supposed to make that call on your behalf, um, a bystander calls 911, anything like that where Redpoint is not contacted for that rescue, that's okay. Don't stress about it yet. Make sure you get to the hospital regardless. Make sure that you uh, are in a safe place. Um, and then after you've kind of started to receive bills and 
um, you're dealing with the fallout of that rescue and those hospital bills, that's when you can reach out to Redpoint and say, hey, I was not able to contact you all to make this rescue, but um, I would like to get reimbursed for uh, these expenses. And they will do their best to kind of match uh, what you were charged and pay out to the full extent possible. But again, ideal scenario, you are able to call Redpoint to initiate that rescue anywhere in the world. Yeah, so it's super important to be prepared as possible in order to try to go through the red point channel. But if you can't, there's a claims process. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, do you have any anecdotes from members that you could share to like, this is real, right? Like yeah. this is how no, people. <laughs> I can assure that it is real. I do talk to our members. Obviously I can't share a lot of what I hear, um, but I can confirm that I've heard from real uh, existent members that they have used this benefit and that it works for them. Um, obviously if it's working well, I mostly won't hear from members. So that's great. Um, I don't necessarily need to hear from you all that it's working. Um, kind of in the more like minor scenario, I have a friend who, uh, was out mountain biking and, you know, went over his handlebars, uh, took a bad fall, uh, hit his head, broke his wrist, uh, was able to have a friend take him to the hospital. Um, so, you know, no rescue was needed in that scenario. Um, but obviously once you're at the hospital, you can get a pretty exorbitant, uh, bill for what might seem like pretty mundane, um, stuff. So like an x-ray and a cast, um, and that expense was covered by Redpoint, um, cause it was emergency stabilization. He was away from home and he was outside recreating. Um, so kind of checked all the boxes there. That's like a super normal scenario. Like any of us could find ourselves in, um, and then on the more like extreme end of things, you know, I have heard from folks who have had to get rescued from the base camp of Everest, um, because they get, uh, dysentery or some other like extreme, um, you know, bodily issue there that they have to get evacuated for. And maybe it's like two helicopter rides to a hospital in Kathmandu. Um, those scenarios are more extreme, but again, I've heard about those being covered by Redpoint or orchestrated by Redpoint. Um, and kind of in the middle grounds, you know, uh, you could experience a pretty serious, uh, whipper when you're out climbing where you could be bouldering by yourself and take a pretty bad fall. Um, maybe you're alone, maybe you don't have cell service, maybe you don't have a satellite device, um, and you have to like take yourself to the trailhead. Um, regardless of whether or not you were rescued, if you still end up in the hospital, again, those bills can get covered by Redpoint. So that's kind of the more like normal scenario that folks, you know, we hope went out, but they might end up in is just ending up in the hospital with an injury that was a result of recreating outside, like all of us do. So, uh, Yes, I've heard really all spectrum, every form of um, anecdote from folks, but it's out there and it's working for our members for sure. Yeah, just kind of like calling back to earlier in this episode, that's the, we love the accident analysis stuff, then, right? <laughs> that's the sexy part. But this is like maybe the most important part is actually being prepared if it does happen to you. Yeah. <laughs> like These details, this functional, um, helpful resource to have the rescue benefit. Yeah. Um, okay, so... If a listener is covered, um, or they're they're really they're sold, you're selling it. Mm -hmm. um, what steps would you recommend members take to be prepared? Sure. So step one is for sure save that emergency red point number in your cell phone. You can also program it into your Garmin InReach device. I know I have an InReach. A lot of our members are out there with InReach Minis. Um, it's a really great device. Uh, for when you're outside of cell service, you need to initiate a rescue. So either of those places, program that emergency phone number. It can be found in your member profile or on our website, uh, AmericanAlpineClub.org slash rescue. Save that number and also tell your friends um, that you have this coverage through American Alpine Club. If they're also not a member currently, maybe talk them into some membership because uh, you wouldn't want a situation where you are covered and your friend is not. They take the fall. Unfortunately, they do not get to take advantage of your coverage through your membership. So 
Uh, maybe vouch for your friends and make sure your belay partner also has their AAC membership up to date. Um, and talk through, you know, the ifs and whens of emergency scenarios with your belay partners. You know, we don't want to have to talk about it, but uh, talk about your action plan. Talk about what sort of communication devices you have on you and um, how you'd prefer your friends to help get you out there and get you to the hospital if, you know, knock on wood, that happens to you. Yeah. Okay. So what are some of the biggest misconceptions you sometimes hear from members or people interested in the rescue benefit? Sure. I think biggest misconception I hear is that folks think this coverage is only for rock climbing. Obviously, like I said, you know, we love rock climbers. They're a major market. Most of our members are pretty big rock climbers. Um, But even if you're not really climbing that much this year, you are still covered for those other activities you are most likely partaking in. Um, So no, you do not have to be climbing for you to be covered. That's a big misconception. Also, folks think that there's like altitude limitations. Um, Like I said, this coverage works basically anywhere in the world. Uh, Only geographic limitations are the North and South Pole. But for the most part, anywhere you'd find yourself recreating around the world, you are going to be covered. Um, So don't worry about that altitude. um, And don't worry about not being climbing per se. I mean, obviously, we can go great into more detail, (laughs) but let's leave with one last question. Um, What do you wish all climbers knew about this rescue benefit? Um, I wish they knew how it worked, (laughs) full stop. (laughs) But I also wish they understood that it doesn't have to be those extreme scenarios with a helicopter. Obviously, that's what we talk about a lot with Pete and in the accidents book is those scenarios with helicopters. That's what makes the news in the climbing world. Um, But, you know, unfortunately, every day there are way more mundane accidents taking place that don't require helicopters, don't necessarily require an ambulance. Um, But somebody's still footing a bill at the end of the day for that incident. Um, And we just want to make sure that our climbers and our members out there know that they don't have to pocket, they don't have to cover that bill themselves all the time. Um, For the most part, it would probably be covered by Redpoint. Um, So just know that it's a pretty expansive, comprehensive package for you. um, And you don't have to be in those really extreme rescue scenarios to get covered. Um, Additionally, something I want to plug for folks is that if you are doing a pretty epic trip this year, maybe you're going to the Karakoram or the Himalaya or South America, Um, and you're interested in extra travel insurance or a trip cancellation or, you know, evacuation for non-medical reasons, all those types of extra coverage you can get through Redpoint. Um, They have this awesome product called Ripcord. All AAC members get a 10% discount on any um, policies of Ripcord that they purchase. Uh, It just covers you for the length of that trip. I've seen what folks are paying. It's very... um, inexpensive, I think, for what you're getting. I highly, highly recommend looking into that if you're looking for some extra coverage for some of those more big adventures this year. Thanks, Lee. I hope that our members and our listeners are a little more educated on um, the rescue benefit and the medical expense coverage and how that that can benefit them. And they're a little more prepared in case something were to happen, knock on wood. Yeah. And if anybody has any extra questions that weren't answered by me, definitely hit up our website, AmericanAlpineClub.org slash rescue. Give us a call at the office or send us an email. Uh, We are more than happy to answer your questions and alleviate any of your concerns about this coverage. We are here to help you and here to get you out there recreating safely. So thanks for having me on, Hannah. Yeah, definitely. This podcast is presented by Outdoor Research. Today's show was hosted by me, Hannah Provo, and produced by Sierra McGivney and Shane Johnson. Don't forget, use promo code ALPINESHIRT23 to join, renew, or donate between June 1st and June 30th, 2023 to get the AAC's limited edition Alpine tea. Snag it now at AmericanAlpineClub.org.